0: We're currently studying the most difficult book in the Bible, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, Last week we were in chapter 13, and for Christians, chapter 13 are the darkest pages of the whole book. Uh, We learned about how when Antichrist comes to power, along with his minister of religion, the false prophet, that under their rule, anyone who does not worship this world leader will be excluded from trade. Uh, That means they won't be able to buy anything or sell anything. And so Christians, who are the only ones who do refuse to worship him, well, they're not allowed to buy stuff or sell stuff. Now, you might sort of think, oh, that wouldn't be so bad. But when you start thinking about it, it, it's pretty tough. Um, You wouldn't be able to access electricity or gas, so people who live in cold countries are going to freeze to death, um, you won't be able to buy any food, you won't be able to access transport, you won't be able to pay for any health care. Um, and for you property owners who are probably going, "Yep, yeah, but we'll be okay because we can grow our own tucker and we can ride a horse for transport and, and whatever, well, don't be too confident because you won't have a property. You see, you won't be able to pay your rates you won't be able to pay your taxes or any other government charges or anything, and they're just going to come in and sell your property out from under you and forcibly remove you. Um, But you're not going to have to worry about that too much because there is a silver lining to every cloud because those who refuse to worship this world leader are going to be executed anyway. So you're not going to have to worry too much about not being able to buy and sell stuff. Um, And so... If we were to take Revelation chapter 13 all on its own, it would probably leave us feeling, well, why would I ever want to be a Christian? If all of this, if this is going to be so hard on Christians, why would I ever want to start following this Jesus fella? And that's why Revelation chapter 13 is bookended by Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 14, which put all of this suffering into perspective. Revelation chapter 12 revealed to us the spiritual reality of why Christians are persecuted so terribly. It's not only a physical battle between ideologies, it's a battle which is taking place in heaven, where Satan and his demons fight against the heavenly armies of the Lord our God. It's a spiritual battle. And it's only because Satan has lost the battle in heaven that he and that he then gets thrown out of heaven, that in his final death throes, he takes all of his fury out on God's children. And so back in chapter 12, we were given a very a few very important bits of information that give us an immense hope. Firstly, Satan has lost the war in heaven and he loses overall. Secondly, these terrible persecutions are only going to go on for a short while. Um, it is a time which has been cut short by God. Thirdly, God has not lost control of the situation. It might seem that all of this, through all of these terrible things, oh, God's lost control. He has not lost control. This is all part of God's good plan. And in God's good time, it will be concluded. And fourthly, even those Christians who do die during this ter- terrible period of history As with any Christian martyr throughout the ages, they go straight to glory where they are honoured and there is no more suffering. There are no more tears to be shed and they're with the Lord. And so chapter 12 gave us courage to get through chapter 13 and the terrible persecutions that Christians are going to suffer. And now today we're into chapter 14 and chapter 14 Is a call to endurance. Now, to us who are not currently being persecuted, it may not seem so much like it, but to those who are suffering terrible cruelty even now simply because they're disciples of Jesus, chapter 14 is a call to endurance. It's a call for them to endure through the suffering. Now, The book of Revelation to us, it it might seem like a terribly mixed up sort of a book, um, but that's only until we come to understand that it's not supposed to be a start to finish sequence of events. It describes the same events several times in different ways. And some of you might be sick of me saying this, but I'm going to illustrate this point. I've plagiarised Philip Jensen's analogy of an instant replay that we have on our sporting events. So in footy, somebody scores a spectacular try and we don't only see it once on the television, we see it four, five, six times from different angles shot with different cameras. Each time we're seeing something different but they're all recording the one event and that's what we have in the book of Revelation. And not only that, but just like some modern movies or modern TV programs today have a flashback or a flash forward, well, that's what we're encountering today, a flash forward. For a moment, we skip ahead to the end to see what happens at the end, and we get a view of what it's like at the finish. It's a flash forward to where the tables are turned. It's a flash forward to where the wickedness of man has grown to its full extent, and God has stepped in to set things right. This is where the first become last and the last become first. It's a flash forward to where Satan is dealt with decisively. The wicked are punished and the righteous are rewarded. And so this is how it is a call to endure it's, We're getting this, this flash forward. Hold on. Here's the flash forward. Jesus is coming. Endure to the end. So with a sense of expectation... Let's have a bit of a look at this flash forward as we read Revelation chapter 14. And today I think we might just take it one section at a time instead of reading it all at the front and then explaining the whole lot. We'll just take it one section at a time. And we'll begin with verses 1 to 5. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Righto. Back in chapter 7, we encountered a group of people numbering 144,000. And at the time, I said many Bible scholars believe that this number is a symbolic number, as just about every number in the book of Revelation is, and that it represents the whole people of God. Okay, so the number 1,000 means a lot, Uh, There's 12 tribes of Israel representing the people of the Old Covenant. There's 12 apostles representing the people of the New Covenant. 12 times 12 equals 144, meaning all the people of God, and lots of them, 144,000. So the number 144,000 is very likely a symbolic number, representing all the faithful children of God throughout history. And here they are again. Back when we saw them in chapter 7, God was putting his mark upon his people. They were sealed. But it wasn't a mark that we can see because the seal is the Holy Spirit. and, And those who were sealed by God would endure, they would conquer. How would they conquer? They were going to conquer by remaining faithful to Jesus and by continuing to be witnesses for Jesus no matter what bad came upon them. And now, with this flash forwards, we see them again. There's 144,000. We go, go, yeah, God has done it. God has sealed them to, to say that these here are going to be protected and they will make it through to the end. And here they are. They have made it through to the glory of God. Not a one is missing. Many of them were killed. They were killed because they dared to be witnesses for Jesus. But here they are, they're not missing. They're with Jesus. And they're not sad about their life being cut short. They're singing and they're worshipping God. And of this song, we were told that no one could learn the song that they were singing, except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. What does that mean? It's an exclusive song. Only they could learn it. Jesus told us that there is only one way to God, and that's through him. There's only one way to be saved, and that is to be redeemed. That means to be bought back. Redeemed isn't a word we use a lot in our our language today. Let me give you an example of what redeemed means. If somebody needs some money, and so they take something valuable to to a pawn shop, and and they pawn it, so they have a really good quality guitar, let's say. Ben Ben needs some money. He takes his guitar to the pawn shop, and they say, well all right, we'll give you X number of dollars for it. And Ben will say, it's worth a lot more than that. And they said, yeah, but we won't be able to sell it for that. So they give Ben $200 for his guitar. And Ben says, all right, I, well, I'll go and do what I can with the $200. Well, Ben sort of still owns that guitar, but he's lost all right to it. And if he wants that guitar back, he has to redeem it. He has to go and take probably $1,000 to the pawn shop to get his guitar back, all right? And so Ben loves that guitar so much, he goes, right, well, I'll go and pay what it costs to get that guitar back. And so I redeem it. He goes and he takes his $1,000 to the pawn shop and they give him his guitar back. That's what it means to redeem something. Now, we, God has the right to own us. He created us. But we've taken ourselves away from him and we owe a lot because of our sin. But Jesus redeems us. He paid that cost on the cross and he bought us back to be his again. No one can earn their way to heaven by doing good deeds. No one can buy their way to heaven by giving away all their money to the poor. We cannot redeem ourselves. Have you messed up your life? Well, you cannot redeem yourself. You cannot fix your life back up again. The only way is to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. The only way is to be brought back by the blood of Jesus. And Jesus did that for us on the cross. All we have to do is repent of our sin. Now, repentance, by the way, means being sorry enough to stop. So repent of our sins and submit the rest of our lives to Jesus Christ as our Lord, which isn't an insignificant cost, by the way. This is something which costs us greatly to submit our lives to Jesus completely as Lord. All right, so it's only the redeemed who are here. It's only the redeemed who, who are with Christ in glory. And so what we're seeing here is we're looking forwards to the final consummation. This is a time when the dead have been raised, and all of Jesus' faithful disciples, right throughout the ages, all of the redeemed, are gathered together under Christ. This is the flash forward. And here it describes the characteristics of those who make it through to the end. Now remember, this is the whole people of God. This is those who have been sealed and God has brought them safely through. These are not an elite group of Christians. They're the same as all of us. that have been redeemed. Jesus had to buy them back just as much as he had to buy you back and just as he had much as he had to buy me back. But there is a very clear image here of their attributes. Attributes of faithfulness, purity and loyalty all of which are the characteristics of the faithful disciples of Jesus. Firstly, they're described as being virgins. Now, we might sort of read that and go, well, that cuts me out. I've got kids, so I'm obviously not a virgin. And uh, Well, don't just give up listening just yet, because once again, this is all very symbolic. In Matthew chapter 25... Jesus told a parable about 10 virgins who were waiting for the arrival of the bridegroom. It was an illustration of waiting for Jesus to return and being ready for Jesus when he does return. And in the book of Revelation itself, we're given the image of the church as the bride of Christ being presented spotless and holy to the bridegroom, Jesus. We sang that song just before, beautiful song about we wait we wait for you like a bride waiting for her groom when paul wrote to the church in corinth he was concerned that there were some people in that church who had been who were turning aside from the truth and starting to follow false teachers and he said this to them in second corinthians chapter 11 he said i feel a divine jealousy for you since i betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, do you see the way all of this ties beautifully into the rest of what we can read in the Bible? Uh, what we're being told here is that those who stand with Jesus on the day of the resurrection the ones who are described as being the virgins, what that means is these are people who have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's what we're being told. Secondly, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And that's what discipleship is all about. Jesus didn't tell us to make converts. He told us to make disciples. And disciples are people who follow Jesus. They follow Jesus wherever he leads. Christianity isn't about making a decision one day and asking Jesus into your life and then it making no difference to the rest of your life. Those who are God's true children follow Jesus wherever he leads. Thirdly, they're described as being the first fruits for God and the Lamb. And to understand this, we have to have a little bit of knowledge about the Old Testament. When the harvest began, the first and the best of the harvest were brought as firstfruits offerings to God. You didn't bring to God the old mouldy grain from the bottom of the silo that was the dregs left over from the end of last year. You brought him the best, the first and the best of the new grain. You didn't bring to God the runt of the litter to sacrifice or the or the sheep with the black spots you wanting to get rid of. You brought to him the best that you had to offer. The first fruits were pure and holy, the best you had to offer. Fourthly, no lie was found in their mouth. All right, well, Christians obviously shouldn't be telling porky pies and telling lies, um, but it's telling us more than this. They were faithful witnesses. The truth of the gospel was on their lips. And fifthly, they were blameless. And, of course, we know that the only way that any of us can be blameless is to repent of our sin. And have all of the blame washed away by Jesus. So here we're given a a pretty good summary of of what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. These are the ones who will be with Jesus on the day of the resurrection. It begins by being redeemed by the blood of Jesus. They then live a life of sincere and pure devotion to Christ. They won't get taken off on false tangents or led astray. They are obedient. That means they follow Jesus wherever he leads, and no matter what it will cost them. They are filled with truth. They are faithful witnesses, and they have a continuing dependence on God for their blamelessness. Now, we all fail. We all fall into sin. But at those times is when we repent of our sin and we turn to God and ask him for our forgiveness. And no matter what sin that we've been involved in, even even if it's a sin that we've been a part of for a long time and something we've structured our whole lives around, if we repent of that sin and turn from that sin and ask God for forgiveness, he forgives us. And we're once again blameless. Let's move on. Verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, I'm going to try not to confuse us too much just here. Um, When John said, then I saw, he's stating the order in which he saw the vision, not the order in which it's going to unfold in reality. All right? So we've just had a flash forward. We've had a flash forward to what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. And for us to read, then I saw, to us it might seem like, okay, so this happens after Jesus returns. No, no, no. This is what John saw next. The flash forward has finished, and now we're coming back to where he left off. Where did he leave off? Well, back in chapter 9, the three woes, that that is God's judgment upon the people of the world, are beginning to unfold. And now we're going to get a more fuller description of what this judgment is going to look like. All the way through the book of Revelation, actually all the way through history, people have been given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent of their sin and turn their hearts towards God. God continually gives us these opportunities, but their pride and their idolatry prevents them from doing that. And even now we're catching a glimpse of of the people being given one last chance to hear the gospel and to repent. And we're given a picture of an angel carrying the gospel through the air. Today, like never before, the gospel is being carried through the air. Uh, It has never been so free or so easy to hear the gospel just about anywhere in the world. Organisations like the Mission Aviation Fellowship fly missionaries in, carrying the gospel into some of the most remote regions on the earth. Organisations like the Far Eastern Broadcasting Company transmit the gospel over the airways, in, over shortwave radio and other bands, and even on television frequencies now, into lands that missionaries are never allowed to tread. Even our little church here, Bush Disciples, are transmitting the gospel and Bible teaching all over the world through our internet ministry. I don't know if you guys realise how much uh, this ministry of this little church is beginning to extend across the globe. Uh, Individual messages on our podcast, that's just the recorded versions, are currently being downloaded around about up to 50 times in a week just for one message. Um, Now, that mightn't seem like that much, but when our average gatherings are only around about 40 or less, the, the number of people who are actually downloading the message to listen to it elsewhere far outnumber our actual local ministry. Now, I have no idea where these ones are being downloaded, but I do know with the video messages. Our video messages are currently getting downloaded in Australia, the USA, Netherlands, Mongolia, the Ukraine, Saudi Arabia. We actually get a lot of downloads from Russia and Germany. And then there's Serbia, Romania, Poland, Norway, Colombia, Lithuania, Korea, Japan, Italy, India, Ireland, UK, France, Spain, Taiwan, the Czech Republic and Brazil. Uh, That's places that are actually not just going to the site, but actually downloading messages. Now, and we're small fish in a very big pond. Like, we're a tiny church, an unknown church, and yet these messages are being downloaded in these sorts of places. Imagine what the big, well-known churches, how much they must be getting downloaded in in places. Today, like never before, the eternal gospel is being proclaimed. Proclaimed to every nation and tribe and language and people. Sadly, though, even though it's being proclaimed, many still won't listen. But I want us to notice what the gospel is and how it begins. This eternal gospel begins with fear God. Very often the gospel that gets preached today is God is love And it's left at that. But before we can fully experience God's love, first we have to fear God. This is where we have a healthy, awe-filled respect for God. And largely, the fear of God has been completely lost from our society. And yet the unrepentant have a very good reason to fear God. This angel flying overhead is carrying the gospel. Now, the word gospel simply means good news. And part of this good news is his proclaiming the coming judgment of God. Preachers who dare to preach on the judgment of God are not very popular today. Actually, I suspect they've probably never been very popular. After all, who wants to hear a message of impending doom um, when we could have a message that, like most people want to hear, you know, a positive message where where we can hear good tidings and a message that's going to pump us up and make us feel really good and and help us to excel in in our lives. Now, I've got to tell you, though, I don't enjoy preaching or teaching on the judgment of God. But if I don't do it, then I've been negligent in my duty as a preacher. Maybe one of the reasons it's taken me so long to getting around to preaching my way through the book of Revelation is because of this reluctance to share and talk about the judgment of God. But here, the gospel, which means good news, is fear God, give him glory, worship him as creator. Why? Why? Because the day of judgment has come. The time is coming when every knee will bow before Jesus as Lord. Even those who have rejected Christ will kneel before him on that day. But unfortunately for them, they will be kneeling in cringing fear. Because by then it will be too late. And if this makes our hearts grieve imagine how much it makes God's heart grieve Verse 8 Another angel the second followed saying Fallen fallen is Babylon the great she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality I'm not going to say much on this one today because in a couple of weeks' time we're going to be hearing more about the symbol of Babylon and what it represents. Uh, but at this point, I'll just say this Babylon, the city of Babylon, is a symbol of idolatry, prosperity, it's a symbol of world trade and immorality, it's an image of greed and indulgence and corruption. And essentially, it's an image of worldliness. Um, and we're all tempted into worldliness. Not one of us are not tempted to go to follow along the paths of worldliness. Um, and that's what Babylon is symbolising. And as God judges the world, the collapse of Babylon and all of its wealth, the world financial system, um, is, which is something which Christians already shut out of, by the way, is going to be part of that judgment. But we'll leave that for a couple of weeks' time when we get to that more fully. Verses 9 to 13. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath Poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. those dark pages of chapter 13. We saw the persecution of Christians. And it would have been so easy for them to, to just deny Jesus and to give a bit of worship to this image of Antichrist. Their, their suffering would have just finished immediately, just like that. But that would have only been a temporary reprieve. And then they would have been far worse off. You see, it's a subtle compromise. You know, it, it, Oh, It won't hurt if I deny Jesus. You know, I can just pretend. I'll just pretend that I'm going to worship this other God, but Jesus, he'll know that I'm not doing it in my heart. What a subtle temptation that is. But the whole point, this is exactly the type of compromise that we're being warned against. It's the sort of compromise that dishonours God and will attract his full wrath. And so this is a call for the endurance of the saints. There's a double reason to remain faithful to Jesus. Those who remain faithful will be rewarded. But those who compromise, verse 10 says, will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. You know, the full terror of hell gets watered down so much with all of these man-made images that we get given. You now I've heard it said so many times, hell is simply a place where God is not. And they go on to explain that if God isn't there, then it's going to be such a horrible place. That's not a biblical description of Hell. And in fact, that's, what, that's a description that actually sounds pretty attractive to sinners. You know, the reason they don't want to become Christians now is because they don't want to have anything to do with God. And to them, that makes hell sound like a giant place of party. And it's giant, I can just be constantly drunk and part of an orgy, it's just going to be fun the whole time because God isn't going to be there. But that's not what hell is described as here. What's being described is an act of punishment. And you know those people who say that it's just that God's not going to be there? That's not true. Who's there? It's in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus Christ. They're actually overseeing it. Verse 14 to 20. Then I looked. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth And threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And blood flowed from the winepress, as high as a horse's bridle, for 1,600 stadia. Which, by the way, is about 300 kilometres. This would have to be one of the most gruesome images and I don't think I have to explain this one to you, do I? The image speaks for itself, this picture of the final conviction of the guilty and their subsequent punishment. Of course, it's not literal. We don't expect to see a giant wine press with angels treading away and blood flowing out of it. We don't know how God is going to punish the wicked. But these images that we're given of the winepress of God's wrath and fire and sulfur should be a pretty good clue that that's not something we want to be caught up in. You know, many people today treat God as if he doesn't exist. Disciples of Jesus are viewed as naive idiots or moralistic moralizers. get me words mixed up, pushing their values on the rest of the world. Academics such as Richard Dawkins have gained celebrity status and make quite a nice living, thank you very much, by publicly mocking God and anyone who would dare to follow him. And the world's wickedness just continues to increase and increase with the attitude that if there is a God, he's left the building. And God allows this to continue. He seems to allow it to continue with impunity, no consequences for their actions. For now. Jesus told a parable once about weeds and wheat growing together in the one paddock. And then the time for harvest came and they were both harvested. The good seed was gathered into the barns and the bad seed was burned. Oh, how terrible it will be for those who don't repent while there is still time. And the thing is, we don't know when the time's up, which is why as Christians we are called to endure and which is why Jesus told so many parables telling us to be ready when he returns. Now, all of those parables that Jesus told about the return of him, all had one thing in common. that It was, he was a long time coming. And he was a long time coming. And so people stopped living as they should be living. They stopped living as if Jesus was going to return at any moment. I want to finish by going back to verses 12 and 13. I skipped over them before. We read them, but... We didn't talk about them because I wanted to finish on them. Verse thirteen says, "Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed," says the Spirit, "that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them." We often read that verse at funerals, and why wouldn't we? It seems very appropriate. Here's somebody that they've worked a really hard life. They've worked hard. It's just whole life seems to be caught up with work and then they die and they need a jolly good rest, don't they? That's not really what it's about. This is really meant more so as an encouragement for the persecuted church. The labours they rest from, well, it's not just work. It's not just earning a living or looking after the family. This labour is more like the labour of childbirth, the pain, the travail. It's the pain and the travail of continuing in the faith. Even when the world hates you, even when the world mocks you for being a follower of Jesus. But those who die in the Lord rest from their labours. They rest from the pain. They rest from the trouble. They rest from the travail. For their deeds follow them. You now, we've heard it said often enough, you can't take anything with you when you die. That's not true, though. Oh, we can't take anything physical with us. But there's plenty we can take with us. How we live on this earth is storing up treasures for us in heaven. In verse 12, the saints, the holy ones of God, are described as those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. The question before us today, as we consider the approaching day of judgment, is twofold. Now, it's important that we get both of these, because sometimes the message that's preached is only one or the other. It's either keep the commandments of God, or believe in Jesus. Jesus. But the message is twofold. One, is my faith in Jesus Christ? Am I a follower of Jesus? Is Jesus my Lord? If I was threatened with death and my only way out was to denounce Jesus or to worship another, would I do it? Or would I be faithful to Jesus? Is Jesus my Lord? Is is he my master? Is he my everything? Is my faith in Christ and in Christ alone? Now, Christianity, it's it's not a religion for wimps. We need stamina to be able to keep on following Jesus. And secondly, am I keeping the commandments of God? As Christians, how we live matters. There's a modern heresy in in, in much church teaching today that says it doesn't matter how you live. As long as you believe in Jesus, you don't have to keep any commandments. You can do what you like. That, my friends, is a lie that leads to hell. It matters very much how we live. And on judgement day, will we be numbered amongst those who compromised. Will we be among those who compromised in their morals? Will we be among those who compromised in their beliefs? Will we be among those who compromised in the way they speak? Will we be among those who compromised in their truthfulness? Will we be among those who compromised in our witness for Jesus? Or will we be among the faithful, pure and holy, singing a new song before the Lamb of God and his throne? Well, it's been pretty heavy going today. Um, I'm glad you could stick with us. Um, And there's more to come yet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we want to thank you. We want to thank you that the day of judgment is coming because that means the day of salvation is coming. And Lord, it's as we reflect on this, coming day of judgment, a day which is sure and certain to come, that our hearts just have to overflow in thankfulness and, and overflow in worship of you, because we hear today about this, this winepress of your wrath. But, Lord, as we begin to understand the way that you redeemed us, we begin to understand that Jesus, Jesus was trodden in that winepress of wrath, that we would be free from it. A river of blood flowed from the foot of the cross at Calvary so that our blood wouldn't flow from the winepress. This is indeed good news. And Lord, we, we cannot be anything other than humbled that you would do this for us, that Jesus would die for us, that you loved us that much, So we thank you and we praise you. And Lord, I pray, we pray, that you would give us strength and courage to truly live as your disciples, not compromising in our behaviour. Oh, Lord, we're so sorry for the compromises we have already made, for the compromises that we seem to have committed to. Lord, give us strength to repent, to turn from our current way and to turn our hearts fully towards you as your obedient children. as the words of that song go like a bride waiting for her groom will be a church ready for you Holy Spirit do your refining work in our lives that this would be true in Jesus name Amen